The following program was made possible in part by a grant from Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and farmer-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods is a fancy way of saying junk food. Junk food comprises a third of American daily calories. We eat crap a third of the time each and every day. Think about kids' tantrums. You know, what we oftentimes find with those children is it's actually not a behavioral problem. It's a blood sugar crash that they have no control over. It's related to what they're eating. It's all alive. It's all connected. It's all intelligent. It's all relatives. Scientists tell us that concern with the environment will no longer be just one of many issues in this new century. It will move to center stage. It will become the context of everything, of our lives, our businesses, our politics. We are, in fact, moving from the information age to the age of biology. In this series, The Bioneers, Revolution from the Heart of Nature, we salute the Bioneers, the biological pioneers who are working with nature to heal nature honoring both traditional native wisdom and modern scientific knowledge, restoring the earth by changing the world. Picture this scene. A Wisconsin high school for developmentally challenged students has to have a police officer patrolling the hallways. Kids fight with teachers, and children carry weapons. Fast forward. A few years later, the students are peaceful and well-behaved. There's no police officer guarding the hallways, no truancies, high graduation rate, no assaults in schools. Now imagine this. In a British prison for men aged 18 to 21, an experimental group experiences 26% fewer violations of prison rules and a 37% drop for serious breaches of conduct, especially violent behavior. What happened to these students and prisoners? In Appleton High School, water coolers replaced vending machines filled with soda pop. Instead of burgers and fries, the school menu now offers dense, healthy protein, fresh fruits and veggies, whole grain bread, a salad bar, and lots of omega-3 fats. In the British prison, the test group whose behavior improved was part of a medical experiment where the men got nutritional supplements with vitamins, minerals, and fatty acids for four months. You've probably heard the idea that you are what you eat. It's just basic biology that what we put into our bodies becomes our bodies. Ordinarily, we apply that idea to concerns about our physical health. But what if it also relates to our mental health? Could it be that our feelings, our states of mind, and even our behaviors are strongly influenced by what we eat? Community development expert Maggie Adamek has concluded that science and sociology are affirming this provocative proposition, that a wide range of behavioral disorders are closely linked to what we eat. It often starts in childhood, and it's influenced by the biological inheritance from our family lineage. She proposes to lead us down a different garden path, to health, happiness, and a restored environment. Above all, she says, taking that path is for the sake of our children. Join us for the next half hour for Kicking the Habit, Sugar, Fat, and Junk Food Junkies with Maggie Adamek. My name is Neil Harvey. I'll be your host. Welcome to the Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. Maggie Adamek is the founder and director of the Sugar Project at the University of Minnesota, 
a collaborative venture that seeks to heal the impact of a fast food, highly refined diet on American brains, bodies, and behavior. She works with schools, substance abuse treatment centers, and communities and families. Maggie Adamek's story begins with her own family history. She grew up on an organic farm in Minnesota, but it was not a romanticized picture. Her father could not wait to get off the farm, where he grew up with no electricity, an outhouse, and draft horses instead of a tractor. Even so, Maggie could not help inheriting a love of farming and the land. But that wasn't all. Maggie Adamek spoke at a recent Bioneers conference. The other thing I've inherited from my father's mother's side of the family, my paternal grandmother's side, is that women in that side of the family get fat and diabetic and the men are alcoholic. So one of the things is we try and make sense of our relationship with Earth and talk about the role that we have between ourselves, food, and health is trying to unravel some of these family health histories that give rise to some of these intractable problems that keep arising generation after generation. And so um, I ground all of my comments today in this family history. So much of what you see here has everything to do with me making sense of something that's been a real problem for my family for generations and something that I hope that my son doesn't have to inherit and carry forward. Maggie Adamek's family lineage of women who are overweight and diabetic has become an epidemic today in the United States. About 60% of Americans are either overweight or obese. Often associated with obesity is type 2 diabetes. There's even a new term for it, diabesity. The crisis is now extended to children. Close to a third of American children are overweight or obese, a number that has doubled for children and tripled for teenagers just in the last 10 years. About 70% of kids who are overweight will become obese as adults. Adamek calls it a life sentence. But, she says, that's just the beginning of a knot of health and behavioral challenges that are intimately connected. A fascinating study that came out um, just last year found that the frequency and intensity of childhood tantrums are positively correlated with, with weight in children. And these are young children, too, so... Um, There's some interesting things, and I think as we move into the biochemistry, you'll begin to see some connections there. And finally, childhood obesity has been positively linked um, to depression in children. Now, what about ADHD or hyperactivity? Um, It's hard to get good numbers. Somewhere between 5 and 10% of American children exhibit diagnosed ADHD. Three times as many boys as girls are diagnosed with this disorder. 80% of the prescriptions for amphetamines written in this country are written for children. Yeah. And administration of amphetamines to children has risen 3,000% in the last 10 years. ADHD often co-occurs with other problems like depression and anxiety disorders, conduct disorders, that's sort of a fancy way, you know, for acting up, um, drug abuse and antisocial behavior. So if you get one, you might have one or more. What about depression and anxiety? Um, I've seen numbers anywhere between 5 and 20%, so 8% seems like a good conservative estimate um, from the numbers that I've, I've found in my research. But uh, teenagers, just under 10% of American teens, are struggling with depression. And we're finding that depression is incurring earlier and earlier uh, during the lifespan for people than it has in past decades. Um, about 5% of youth have anxiety disorders, 13% of American adults have anxiety disorders. So this stuff is happening in childhood and gradually increases the older the child gets toward adulthood. And that also has increased a lot in the last 30 years. 
So how is this related to diet? I mean, so big deal. If there's folks who are anxious, depressed, you know, these are serious issues, but what does that have to do with what we eat? Well, since 1970, we've increased our uh, consumption of refined carbohydrates by 50%. We consume less than one serving a day of complex carbohydrates, those whole grains, less than one serving a day. So almost everything we eat that's carbohydrate is refined. Since 1970, there's been a greater than 4,000% increase per person per year in the consumption of high-fructose corn syrup. We're eating 300 calories a day more than we did in 1970, and almost all of it comes from carbohydrates, and since we eat less than one serving of whole grains per day, almost all of that is refined carbs. So what we're ingesting is very different than what we were when I was a kid. In less than 40 years, Americans have experienced a radical change in our diets. It's hardly an outlandish idea that such a basic shift would alter our brain chemistry and in turn affect our behavior. Are we getting the good nutrition our brains and bodies need from a dramatic increase in the standard American diet of refined carbohydrates like white flour, or from a super sweet menu of sugar, candy, and supersized soda pop whose consumption has risen by 40% since 1980? And what about high fructose corn syrup called the crack of sweeteners? that now permeates everything from soda pop, iced tea, and yogurt to bread, soup, and salad dressing. Is it pure coincidence that the spike in obesity closely tracks our consumption of high-fructose corn syrup, not to mention the huge portion sizes that have become the norm of our meals? Are we on a fast-food, fast-track to a public health crisis? Maggie Adamek says we are. Energy-dense, nutrient-poor foods is a fancy way of saying junk food. Junk food comprises a third of American daily calories. We eat crap a third of the time each and every day. We love fast food. One in four American adults eats fast food every single day. One in three American children eats fast food every day. That doesn't include any processed or convenience foods prepared at home in the microwave from the freezer, nor does it include any fast food-esque products that they're eating as a part of their hot meals program at school. So the chicken nuggets they eat at school aren't counted in that statistic. So many children who are eating free hot breakfast and lunch at school, if they're getting three meals a day, are eating three meals a day of fast food. And, of course, soft drink consumption is up 135% in the last 20 years, 30 years. So we look at all these kids who are overweight and hyperactive and diabetic, and we wring our hands and say, what do we do? And we say, take the pot machines out of school, get them off the couch, cut their calories, give them more vegetables, and um, take away their video games. All they have to do is reduce the amount of calories and get more active, and it'll work. Well, if 92% of Americans who lose weight on a diet gain it back, does dieting work? Calorie reduction, does it work? It doesn't work. It doesn't work for most people. So the notion of taking individual responsibility to spur on weight loss, particularly with children when you are very careful about kids' self-esteem and having them become obsessed about their weight, becomes a very tricky proposition, and we just have to face it. It's not effective. So when you look at those symptoms, depression, anxiety, childhood obesity, type 2 diabetes, some of the other behavioral and conduct disorders in American diets, what is going on? What's the connection? And what I'm here to suggest and what the Sugar Project bases its work on is that there's an underlying set of neurochemical problems that give rise to these various issues, including alcoholism and some other forms of addiction. These may not be a function of willpower. These may not be a function only of family of origin issues. There may be some neurochemical issues at play that help contribute to these problems.
Maggie Adamek's work with the Sugar Project has helped uncover a deep and disturbing bundle of interlacing patterns that add up to a neurochemical profile that fosters behavioral disorders and even addiction. And it starts with what foods we eat or don't eat and how we eat them. So what are the neurochemical roots of the problem? Well, there's a lot of them. I'm going to talk about four. One of them is blood sugar regulation. If you eat erratic meals or have a diet that's very high in refined carbohydrates, your blood sugar is going to be volleying constantly. And those of us, like me, who got it from my grandmother and then my father, and I passed it along to my son, have very sensitive blood sugar systems, which means that you have a little bit of sugar and it goes way up like this, and then when the, the fun starts to wear off, it goes way down like that. People who have functional blood sugar regulation, there are dips and spikes, but it's a much more gentle wave. And then there's people like me where these, these um, high and crashes. Those are oftentimes the folks that end up as type 2 diabetic. Volatile blood sugar is a problem, that blood sugar regulation. Low serotonin, low beta endorphin or opiates, your body's own opiate system, and low dopamine are the roots that we're going to explore today. So what are the symptoms when blood sugar is low? Well, think about yourself, and if you skipped breakfast today or you had a breakfast that was you know, pretty high in carbohydrates. Um, Ask yourself how you felt at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. For me, when I had a diet that was much higher in carbohydrates, I found out that I was tired all the time no matter how much sleep I got, that I was spacey and cranky, easily irritated, um, and I had a pretty short fuse. And you think about kids' tantrums, you know, and kids who just can't pull it together, they're tired, um, they lose it. What we oftentimes find with those children is it's actually not a behavioral problem, it's a blood sugar crash that they have no control over. It's related to what they're eating or not eating. What about low serotonin? Well, many of us understand that serotonin is tied to depression. Low levels of serotonin are linked to depression. But what's interesting is low levels of serotonin, which can be genetically transmitted, particularly in families where there's a high degree of type 2 diabetes and alcoholism, is that impulse control is also tied into low serotonin. So not just depression, but impulse control. Think about addicts and think about people who are flying off the handle and that inability to to keep a lid on those things, or the inability to have a gap between their reaction and the decision that they make. Impulse control, and it's biochemically mitigated. Low serotonin's tied to short attention span, aggression, reactivity, emotional reactivity, and guess what? A craving for sweets and carbohydrates. Tell a person who needs to lose weight just to stop eating the things that are not good for them, and what they'll find is after three or four days, they are craving, craving, craving. And I'm sure there's many of you in the audience that know what I'm talking about. We're all as well if you could just have a cookie. Beta-endorphin. Beta-endorphin people are familiar with when we think about the runner's high, but what the beta-endorphin system is is our body's own opiate system. When we're in pain, when we're exercising, we release a flood of opiates or beta-endorphin that serves as a natural painkiller to the body. If I shut a window on my thumb, what my body does is release beta-endorphin to help numb the pain. It's got a positive function. What we found in people who are born into alcoholic families um, or families with a series of some of these other health problems is they may be born with low density of opiate receptors and um, opiate levels in their brain. What that means is they may have a low tolerance for pain, emotional pain, and physical pain. They may have low self-esteem or feel inadequate, tearful. They may be more sensitive to criticism, feeling alienated or isolated from others, seeking crisis because even painful situations will create a beta-endorphin spike in the brain and um, give a person temporary relief. So too, by the way, will not eating. So when we're talking about kids and eating disorders, not eating will evoke a beta-endorphin release because your blood sugar crashes with no food in your stomach. The body releases beta-endorphin to stop the pain. 
And what you have is the cycle of people who actually become addicted to the production of their own opiates. You've heard of exercise addiction? Same thing, same thing. So guess what? There are two substances outside of alcohol, morphine, and heroin that allow your body to produce beta endorphin. It produces endogenous opiates, and that's sugar and fat. Happens to everybody. Some of us who have low levels of opiates in the brain, this becomes problematic because you get these big highs and these big lows and this cycle of dependency. Low dopamine, that's something that if you know anything about addiction, people talk about dopamine levels in the brain. Uh, Low dopamine is correlated with unhappiness, um, linked to aggressive behavior and violence. They've done some really interesting studies in prisons looking at blood sugar regulation and dopamine levels in prisoners, and what they found is most guys who are incarcerated who have committed violent crimes, at least in these studies, have very volatile blood sugar regulation and a low density of dopamine. And, you know, this is a weird sort of science term, lack of positive emotionality, but it means that you don't feel so good about life. Wow, that's a pretty compelling profile. And we talk about some of these issues that kids are having um, with their health, and we begin to look at the neurochemical profile and the changes in the American diet over the last 30 years. A fairly compelling portrait starts to emerge as we connect the dots. So think about our kids. A lot of kids, especially high school kids, Hop on the bus or go to school. They can sleep till the last second. They skip breakfast. They may have a Coke at 10 o'clock in the morning because they're about ready to pass out from hunger and feeling so sleepy they can't stay awake. They may eat fast food after school. This is kind of a typical teenage diet. Maggie Adamek. The obvious question, she says, is that if neurochemical deficits related to our diet and amplified by our inherited genetic predispositions give rise to emotional and behavioral symptoms, then what happens when people change their diet? When we return, more from Maggie Adamek about the nature of fast food addiction and how people are breaking the habit by treating food as medicine. I'm Neil Harvey. You're listening to The Bioneers, revolution from the heart of nature. more from Maggie Adamek, visit our free radio podcasts page at Bioneers.org. Drug is not normally a word we associate with common foods, but Maggie Adamek says mounting evidence from scientific studies is changing the way we see that. In this case, the drug dealer, the culinary candy man, is dealing sugar and fostering actual chemical dependency. Bart Hobel at Princeton University and Carlo Colantuoni at Johns Hopkins have demonstrated conclusively that when rats are given sugar in binge doses, it will induce physical dependency. Two interesting pieces about this research. Number one, the binge dose that they gave to these rats was the equivalent of a 20-ounce serving of soft drinks. So think about these kids drinking these supersized servings of soft drinks and that issue of evoking chemical dependency. Here's the second scary thing about that study. Remember I've been talking about people like me who have these family histories? What he did is he worked with rats with normal biochemical profiles, and he found that this addictive opiate cycle in the brain can be induced in any rat, whether they're bred to be sugar-preferring or they just have normal brains. 
Um, another thing that he found is he got rats dependent on sugar, then gave them amphetamines, the same amphetamines that are administered to children who have ADHD. And what he found is the likelihood that these rats become addicted to amphetamines significantly increases if they're dependent on sugar first. In other words, sugar is a gateway drug. So we're not just talking about obesity, type 2 diabetes, anxiety disorders, depression, conduct, behavior stuff. We're also talking about a long-term struggle not only with obesity and diabetes but addiction. And what happens when we have a nation of folks that are in this cycle of craving and relapse? How do they become productive citizens on their jobs, in their communities, within their families? And any of you who've ever lived with an addicted person knows what a roller coaster ride it can be. Finally, um, there's an interesting study at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. They gave people food high in sugar. They ate a certain amount. They gave people food high in fat. They ate a certain amount. When they gave people food high in sugar and fat, think a supersized meal, they ate up to six times more than they would with the other serving sizes. So something hormonally is happening when you're given foods that are high in sugar and fat together that cause us to eat a lot more. Why don't you just give kids NutraSweet? Guess what, folks? Sweet taste alone will evoke that addictive opiate response in the brain. You know people who are addicted to Diet Coke, anybody? Yeah, well, it not only triggers that opiate response, but aspartame actually evokes a dopamine response in the brain, too. What do children need? They need to eat enough, and they need to eat on time. They need to eat every couple hours. Even my 14-year-old needs to eat every couple hours. They need adequate protein, complex carbs, fruits and vegetables, omega-3 fats, and water. Kids don't get enough protein primarily in, in uh, U.S. culture. Their snacks need to not be made of carbohydrates. They need to have a cheese stick. They need to have nuts. They need to have peanut butter. They need to have something that is a protein source along with complex carbs. They need protein at breakfast. For Maggie Adamek, it all gets very personal. By changing her own diet, she dramatically improved her own well-being and dodged the bullet of her family history of obesity, diabetes, and alcoholism. But what about the fate of her children? Maggie Adamek spoke with us about her younger son, her biological son. My younger son was, would eat a lot of good stuff, but he had you know, a lot of moodiness and um, sulkiness and got tired really easily. And he, he didn't have a lot of behavior problems or anything like that, but um, I could tell he had the same body chemistry as I did. And so what I started to do is just um, talk to him, first of all, about these links between when you feel like this, this is your blood sugar. And you know when he would get into a space where he was really angry or not doing the best job of behaving, what I would start with is I'd say, okay, you're going to have a snack, and then 10 minutes later we'll deal with it. And 99% of the time it was just that his blood sugar was crashing and he just needed something to eat. So he started when he was 7 or 8, and we just made small steps. So adding in protein at breakfast, letting him make the choices if he wanted to have something you'd usually eat for dinner, like a piece of chicken, if you wanted that for breakfast, I said, fine, as long as you have protein, you get to choose what it is. And then um, we ate a lot of whole grains at our house anyway, so we weren't switching from a fast food diet to a slow food diet per se. We were already sort of pretty slow. It was just better slow. And then um, I began to talk to him about the impact of sugar on how he felt. And you could point to, in his behavior and in how he was feeling, you could point to, remember what you ate this morning, and then look what happened this afternoon at 3 o'clock. And then on the days where he would have uh, a more balanced um, diet for the day and enough protein and complex carbs, it's, look at what a good day you had today. And so he began to notice in himself and once the kids start to make the connections, I think they're pretty motivated because they have a taste of what it's like to feel good. It all starts with using food as medicine. 
Most addiction recovery programs have about a 20% success rate over five years. It's not very high. And the work that we've done in the controlled studies has a 92% long-term recovery rate because we look at the neurochemical underpinnings and we treat them, but we treat them through food rather than pharmacology. It doesn't mean it's a cure-all, but I think it works better than things we've had up to this point. And we're finding in the neuroscience that there's this big gap between how people are being treated for addiction and what neuroscientists know biochemically about addiction. So people still go through talk therapy, and they're not being treated for the underlying biochemical problems. So there's this big gap between application and research, and that's one of the things we're trying to do is to close that gap and also remind the medical community that you don't always need pills to heal illness, that that food itself is medicine. Today, Maggie Adamek is working with a large school district in the Twin Cities of Minnesota and with other smaller rural school districts. She conducts teacher trainings and assists with curriculum development. But at the end of the day, Maggie Adamek's food revolution starts at home. And I can tell you from my own experience um, with this and as a mother that it's made a tremendous difference. And my son's teachers tell me again and again in his conferences he's the only kid that can pay attention at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. He's so calm. He makes really good decisions. And, you know, my family, his father was a drug addict, and I come from a family where there's a lot of these issues. And so I really think it's, as a mother, I look at this and say, this is where I want to stop this cycle. And as parents of all the Earth's children, we really have to look at what we're doing to our kids. And it's not just that they're paying for this environmentally. They're paying for this at the cellular level. And it's time to transform the whole relationship. Thank you. Ongoing research continues to confirm what Maggie Adamek knows, not just as a medical researcher, but as a mom and community worker. Good diet strengthens our kids' health, and it improves their behavior, performance in school, and well-being. Those jails where so many of our children are ending up are also finding what a big difference good nutrition makes. As researcher Stephen Schunthaler said, having a bad diet right now is a better predictor of future violence than past violent behavior. To help their people kick the habit, several countries are now exploring attacks on junk food. In England, the government has pledged to spend big bucks on improving school lunches. In the Netherlands, tests are starting in 14 prisons using nutrition supplements to study the link between nutrition and behavior. At the end of the day, we are what we eat. And it's the idea that what we eat does not affect our behavior that seems outlandish. Kicking the Habit, Sugar, Fat, and Junk Food Junkies. To find the latest resources related to this program or to order a copy of this show, visit Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. Practical solutions and social innovations for our most pressing environmental and social challenges can also be found online at Bioneers.org. Choose from articles, news releases, blogs, event calendars, books, CDs, podcasts, and DVDs. You can learn more about the Bioneers through their annual conference and by becoming a member. To register and join online, go to Bioneers.org or call 877-246-6337. The Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature is a production of Collective Heritage Institute. 
Executive producer, Kenny Ausubel. Written by Kenny Ausubel and Neil Harvey. Senior producer, Neil Harvey. Managing producer, Stephanie Welch. Production assistants, Ginny McGinn and Marita Prandoni. Original recordings provided by Conference Recording Service. Recording engineer for the Maggie Adamek interview was Erica Bridgman. Our theme music is taken from the album Journey Between by Baca Beyond and used by permission of Hannibal Records, a Ryko disc label. Additional music was made available by The Temporary Residence Limited at www.temporaryresidence.com. For more music information, please visit Bioneers.org. The opinions expressed in the Bioneers Revolution from the Heart of Nature radio series are those of the presenters and are not necessarily those of Collective Heritage Institute, the underwriters, or this radio station. My name is Neil Harvey. Thank you for listening. I invite you to join the Bioneers in improving the environment by changing the world. This is program number 1207. This program was made possible in part by a grant from Organic Valley Family of Farms, organic and farmer-owned since 1988. Learn more at organicvalley.com.